book of Psalms, and specifically Psalm 8 is where we're headed this morning. But as you're turning there, again, just want to thank you so much for having us, um, for inviting us all down, my family, and yes, uh, our little kiddos, we for a few months have two, two and under still, and then our oldest will turn three, uh, but they and my wife, Jorianne, were not able to make it this morning, but looking forward to being back again with you all, and thanks to those of you who have already greeted me so warmly and loved chatting with some of you already, and Chuck and team for leading us this morning in worship. It's, it's been a good start to my morning, and I have you to thank for that, so thank you for having us. Uh, when Caleb invited me to come, I, I was really excited, and when I get asked to come and speak at a new place, I like to do whatever that congregation or that place is used to. And so I started to grow out my beard to try to catch up with Pastor Caleb and his Spurgeon beard, but I don't think I'll be able to catch up. It'll take me a few years to get that. But again, just delighted to be here. Thank you for having us. I'm not here to talk about me this morning, though. Here to open up God's Word. So I trust that you've made your way to Psalm 8 and Before we jump into our text, specifically our specific psalm, let's talk about the psalms in general a bit, since we're not exactly picking this up in the middle of a a series on psalms. We're kind of jumping in here for one day, so I think it's important for us to get some context. How are we doing? We okay? Okay, just going to start. I'm good, Chuck? Okay, I'll keep going. So let's talk about the psalms. Uh, There's a reason why... This book, Psalms, is among the most well-read in all of Scripture. There is a lot of richness to glean from this book. And we seem to find ourselves drawn to this book time and time again. And there's a lot to glean. It's the biggest book of the Bible. We must remember that it, what it was originally used for, the ancient hymn book for a nation, a very specific nation, God's chosen nation from among the nations, the people of Israel. And it's the hymn book that they used to, to guide their very approach to worshiping their God. And not just how to do it, how to approach him, but the content of their worship. What should, what should it look like? Who are we worshiping? Of course, it's the one true God. But it hasn't just been a hymn book for the nation of Israel If you think through the history of the church and generation upon generation of people of faith coming to this book to guide how they worship the one true God. And so we find ourselves in that that same sense. It contains some of the most well-known verses in scripture in a secular setting. So not just among people of faith, but in the world, people come to the Psalms and they have heard those words before, perhaps, especially in funerals and the like. But we have to understand that it's a unique section of Scripture. It's very different than other parts, and we can't approach it the same way we approach every other text. And that's because we're dealing with a very particular type of literature here. We're dealing with poems. And poems have a very specific nature. They're, they're artistic, and they're, they're lyrical, um, And so we have to understand that going into it. It's not going to have necessarily a a clear, straightforward path of of logic and thinking and point A, B, and C. And and that's a little hard for some of us who who like it to be A, B, and C, get to the point, tell me what you're talking about here. Uh, So we have to remember, we're dealing with poems here, poems. And it doesn't mean that just because it's a poem that it doesn't have structure or purpose. It just means we'll have to figure out how it's traced out. So the structure of each psalm is so important for us as we approach them to understand what that specific psalm is about. Each of these, of course, has a beginning and an end, and the rest of our chapter delineations in Scripture are not actually there originally. They're added later. But in the psalms, you have a unit, a very specific unit for each one. There's a beginning and an end. There's a specific intended structure. So understanding each psalm's structure will be so important to understanding its meaning. So we'll see that this morning as we look at Psalm 8 in particular. Uh, It's a little easier to do with our psalm, which is only nine verses, as opposed to, say, Psalm 119. We're not doing that this morning. I'm going to break down the structure of the, the largest chapter in the Bible. But again, there's something about the psalms that draws us in. 
And I'm going to argue that that isn't something at all, but it's someone. Not any of the seven-plus human authors who wrote the Psalms from Moses to David, but the God who guided their pens to write down exactly what he wanted them to write down, and in doing so to instruct us and invite us to come and to meet him in these words. And more than just meet him, we're going to see this morning that we're instructed to worship him and to enjoy him. And why would we be drawn to do that? Well, as we're going to see in this book of Psalms, but specifically in our psalm this morning, that to do so, to be drawn to worship the one true God and to do it, to worship and enjoy him. That's where we're doing exactly what we're made to do. To glorify God and enjoy him forever. So when we genuinely praise the one true God, the creator of heaven and earth, there is nothing more fulfilling, there's nothing more transformative, and there's nothing more right that we can do. When we find ourselves in praise, we find ourselves exactly where we need to be. And so that's the title of our sermon today, why praise is both right and transformative. So that's what we're going to talk about today. Sound good? Well, I, I want to pray and ask for God's help for our time before we jump into the text, and then we'll read it together. But first... Let's pray. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are so thankful this morning as we prepare to dive into your word together that you give us your word. You give us the Bible. You don't leave us to just look around at your beautiful creation around us and leave us with only that to know what you are like, but you give us these words. You show us who you are, you reveal yourself to us in these pages and in doing so invite us to come and to know you, how you intend for us to do that. And so our prayers this morning that you, is that you would use this time to do just that. Show us anew who you are. Show us the truth you want us to know this morning. Use this time to do that. Plant that truth in our hearts and do what only you can do in our hearts Use truth to change our hearts, to mold us, and to shape us, to be like our Savior Jesus. We know we need this work, and so we ask for it, and we thank you for promising to do that work and one day completing it in a future day. We look forward to that, but use this time, Lord, we pray in the name of Jesus and through the Spirit. Amen. All right, you got your Bibles? Psalm 8. Nine verses, not very long. So we're going to take our time and we're going to read it together. This is God's word. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you've established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Perhaps a, a familiar refrain for us. We, we sang it together this morning. Being such a, a short psalm, it's, it's fairly obvious to point out that the beginning is the same as the end. The psalm begins with the same line it ends with. It's that same phrase, 
O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And this bookend structure really makes us, it makes it hard for us to miss the emphasis that the author is getting at here, what he wants us to know. He's trying to tell us something with this structure. Praise, praise is so important. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And it's not just that the author repeats the line twice, but it's where he does so at the beginning and at the end of his poem. And remember, structure is so important. He's trying to tell us something here. And it's this. So if you're taking notes, you can write this down. A Godward posture of praise should mark our life. A Godward posture of praise should mark our life. Now notice I didn't say praise, simply praise should mark our life. It would be appropriate to do so, but I want to get a little bit more specific than that. A Godward posture of praise. That word Godward I use specifically because I think that this psalm has something to say about the posture of our very lives. That it should be decidedly Godward. That's what the psalmist is saying. At all times, we live our lives postured in a certain direction. We think about things. We focus on things. We work towards things. We are focused in a very specific direction. We're always working towards something, thinking about something, what we spend our time doing, what we're dedicating resources to. The Bible calls all of these things worship. We are always worshiping something. We are intrinsic worshipers. It's how we're designed. And so that means that the posture of our life is always pointed a specific place. We are posturing ourselves towards something at all times. It's how we live. And this psalm comes along in direct opposition to our tendency of where we like to be postured. We have a sinful tendency to be postured either inwardly to think only of ourselves and what we want and and what we need. Or also, we have a sinful tendency to look outward for answers, but in the wrong places. This psalm comes in direct opposition to that and says, don't look inward, don't look outward in the wrong places. No, look decidedly Godward. Our posture should be Godward. It is a Godward posture of praise that should mark our life at all times. So don't miss how this psalm begins. It begins by demonstrating what it looks like to look Godward. Notice how it begins. The first four words. O Lord, our Lord. O Lord, our Lord. Notice the Godward posture there. This is a direct address to the sovereign God of all things. And in doing so, the the author uses this specific name for God and a title for God. He demonstrates the, the eternality and the supremacy or the, the sovereignty of God, that God is the ruler of all, that he is Lord. He begins by uh, employing the divine name, Yahweh, which we see, of course, in our English Bibles as Lord in all capital letters, L-O-R-D in all capital letters. That's the divine name, Yahweh, the, the covenant name, the specifically revealed name that, that Moses was given when, at the burning bush when God was preparing Moses as part of his plan to go rescue Israel. He's commissioning Moses in this moment, and Moses asks him, when the people ask for your name, who should I tell them that you are? And what does God say? I am who I am. This is the name Yahweh. I am who I am. And in doing so, it emphasizes one of the most fundamental truths of Scripture, one of the most fundamental truths about who God is, which Scripture is all about revealing. And that is the simple fact that God is. God is. He exists eternally. He always was. He has no beginning. He is now and he forever will be. I am that I am. He is the one who will be always. There's none like him. There's no one beside him in this way. There is no God but he, the one who simply is. Yahweh, the great I 
am. So that's how the psalmist starts, right there with Yahweh. And that's where we need to start in terms of this Godward posture. The way we live our lives doesn't start with us. It starts with the one who is. He's the one who defines us. He defines all of reality. He is the eternally existing one. He is Yahweh, our starting place, a Godward posture. So he starts by employing the divine name, but he doesn't stop there. He could have just said, oh, Yahweh, and then continue on with what he was saying. But he has another title for God. Oh, Yahweh, our Lord. Oh, Lord, our Lord. Oh, Yahweh, our Lord. Now, this title for God, Lord, emphasizes his sovereignty, his supremacy as the great ruler. His rule and reign is as the Lord of all. He is the Lord. And notice the specific pronoun, as it turns out in our English Bibles. It was one word in the original language, but he uses the plural possessive here. Specifically, our Lord. And that's significant. He could have just said, You are the Lord, O Lord, the Lord. Our Lord is so much more personal because God is a personal God. He's a a God of relationship. And his covenant name tells us as much as does this use of our Lord, not the Lord, not the world's Lord, not your Lord, not y'all's Lord, our Lord, our Lord God is the sovereign Lord of everything and everyone. And no, he's not always recognized as Lord everywhere. His lordship is not recognized everywhere all over the earth. But the fact remains, the psalmist claims that he is the Lord of all. And he is. He is our Lord. And so indeed, there's a a posture of humility here. We're paying attention to the posture of the psalmist here. He's modeling for us the posture that we should have as well, this Godward posture of praise that should mark our life. And so in the names, how he addresses God in the first four words, we need to be paying attention because he's showing us how we should posture ourselves as well. And you can see here in these specifically chosen titles and names for God that he chooses to use, he's showing us that there's humility and also honor, praise, before the one true God of the universe. And that's evident just in these first four words in this psalm. And so, staying on titles and names for God for a moment, the the psalmist continues in verse 1. Let's read it. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So, here's a mention of name. His name is is majestic. And you just saw from his name Yahweh that there can be a lot to unpack in a mere name. A name has meaning. There's meaning behind a name. A name is how you are known. When I say the name Abraham Lincoln, I've not told you anything about Abraham Lincoln. I've only mentioned a name. But already, all these things flood your mind about Abraham Lincoln, who he is, what he was like, because a name is how you are known. A name is not detached from action. We know a lot about Abraham Lincoln because we know what he did, what he said. He's known for what he said. Think of the Gettysburg Address. He's known for what he did. Freeing slaves, you know, the Civil War, president, all the acts, etc., He's known for what he did, what he said. God is the same way. God, graciously so, reveals himself to us. He didn't have to do that, but he does. He reveals himself to us, and one of the special ways he does this is by giving us his names. And not just one name. He could have given us one name. He gives us many names. And these names aren't generic. They're very specific They tell us something about God, and all of these are examples of him graciously revealing himself to us, showing us what he is like. And the beautiful part about God's names is that they aren't detached from action. 
He could have just given us names. He could have just told us who he was. He could have said, hey, I'm faithful. My name is faithful. Trust me. He could have just done that. But instead, he actually moves in our lives and he moves in history to provide, to protect. And he shows us through his actions, through real actions, that he is who he says he is, that he is faithful. So he tells us he's faithful, and then he shows us in our lives. You can look back in your own life as an individual person, and that is a gracious thing to look back and to see how God has moved in your life, and you see different examples of how he has been faithful, how he's lived up to who he says he is here in these pages. That is a, that is a gracious thing that God's names, who he tells us who he is, they're not removed from his action. All of that is gracious, him revealing himself to us. We have to remember that, that the only reason that we know that God is majestic is because he has revealed that to us. His name is majestic in all the earth because his nature is majestic. He is known to be majestic because he is majestic. But we wouldn't know that if he didn't show that to us. He reveals his majesty to us. And the psalmist says as much in verse 1. Let's keep reading. So we have, O Lord, our Lord, O Yahweh, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And here's how, one of the ways, he reveals his majesty to us. You have set your glory above the heavens. Let's keep reading in verse 2. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. Two emphases here in these two verses, uh, both concern how God reveals his majesty. O Lord, O Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And here's two ways that you reveal that majesty to us. The second, in verse 2, emphasizes how God establishes strength through a a very unlikely source. Uh, Perhaps the unlikeliest of source that we would imagine strength coming from. Infants helpless babies. But we'll get to that in a second. The, the first emphasis is on God revealing his beauty, his splendor in creation. His majesty is on display all around us if we simply open up our eyes. The psalmist says, you have set your glory above the heavens. You know, one of my favorite places in the world is A place pretty far from here, it's in a very random location, Clinton County, Pennsylvania. I grew up in Pennsylvania, and we would go up to at least what I called growing up the mountains, and then I moved out here, and now I just call it a big tall hill, I guess. Uh, But we would go up to the mountains in Clinton County, and a buddy of mine had, uh, his dad had a cabin up there with some land, and on that land, uh, before he had owned it, someone uh, built an airstrip, a small airstrip for f- small airplanes on that property. And so you go up, there's all kinds of trees up there. And on this airstrip, the great part about it was it meant that the, all the trees were cleared out. And so you go out on that airstrip at nighttime. And I'm telling you what, I've never seen so many stars in my life. You're far away from city lights. There's no lights to block your view, and then those trees are all cleared out. So you have this magnificent view of the heavens as the psalmist describes them here this night sky in all its splendor have you ever seen these before stars and i'm telling you what you 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 put your thumb up in the sky and you you close one of your eyes and you, you couldn't put your thumb anywhere in the sky where it wasn't covering up another star and i'm telling you I know it's bad grammar, but you can't not wonder at that. Wonder at the stars. I had a, a great drive down this morning from Tacoma, enjoying all the colors of fall, and the, and the sun was, was coming up, and it was orange, bright and deep orange. And then it kind of turned into this hue of yellow, and it was just reflecting off these trees that were changing colors, and the, the seasons continue to change, and the heat, the warmth that we feel from the sun. God is revealing 
his glory to us. That's what the psalmist is saying, that these wonder-inducing sights and sounds of creation are just a taste, a taste of the glory of God. If we're paying attention, we can see his majesty all around us. You have set your glory above the heavens. This psalm calls us back to to Genesis 1, to the, the opening pages of Scripture, that in the first five words there in Scripture, the first five words in Genesis 1 reveal to us two of the most fundamental truths in Scripture. We already mentioned the first one, simply that God is, that he always was, he exists eternally. He has been, he is, and he forever will be. And the first four words of Genesis tell us this, that in the beginning, God as in, as in, in the beginning, God was. He was already there. So he was there before the beginning. No one was before him. No one made him in the beginning God. That's the first truth. But the five, first five words tell us something. The fifth word tells us something as well. Not only did he exist in the beginning, but in the beginning, God what? God created. God as the eternally existing creator That has to be our starting place to all of theology. God, as the eternally existing creator, it must be our starting place to answering life's biggest questions, to answering questions of origin and and meaning. Our starting place must be as scriptures is, in the beginning, with God, the creator. He's the one who defines reality because he made reality. And when we do that, when we start there, when our theology, our headspace is there with God first before us, we will be following the guideposts of this psalm. What this psalm is asking us to do, living a life characterized, characterized excuse me, by Godward thought, by Godward speech and action, a life, a life, a lifestyle of Godward praise. And the argument that is inherent in this psalm is that when we're doing this, when we're genuinely worshiping the one true God, we are doing the right thing. We are doing the most appropriate thing we can ever do. Praise the one who made us. All of creation testifies to his splendor. The heavens do declare his glory and bid us to come and worship. And God himself, our designer and creator, calls us to worship him. And he equips us to do so. He made us to do so. Our very design is to worship him. We're created to worship him. The theme verse in our vacation Bible school this past summer was, it's one of my favorite verses in scripture, Ephesians 2.10, that we are his workmanship, the workmanship of God, created in Christ Jesus for good works. We're created for good works, which he prepared beforehand for us to do. We're his workmanship. Worship is what we are designed specifically, each of us uniquely so, with a unique purpose, a unique way to worship him, each of us with a different fingerprint, God's fingerprint unique on each of us in our lives. He designed each of us to worship him. That is what we are made to do. Most of the time we think of praise and and worship as lifting our voices, singing a song perhaps to him, but everything about us, our thoughts, our voices, our actions, all of these are made to worship God. When we see the instructions then in the Bible to sing to the Lord, we must remember that our very lives, the way we are living, in obedience or disobedience, that sings the loudest to him. We worship because we're worshipers. It's who we are. We worship because we were designed to do so, and so it is right for God's people to praise him. It's right when our hearts are oriented towards him. And so that's the call of this psalm, the the first half of the call at least, and so that's the first half of our sermon title is that it is right, praise is right. It's where we need to be. It's exactly where we're intended to be. But the second half, we can't forget about either. And I think it's inherent to the psalm that praise is not just right. A Godward posture of praise is not just right, but it's also very beneficial to us. 
It's transformative. It changes us. What do, what do we mean by this? Well, let's see what the psalm says about this. Verse 3, let's keep reading. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Really interesting verses here. Notice the, the continued Godward posture, though, of the psalmist. He still has that Godward posture. He, he recognized the heavens as your heavens. Remember, he's talking directly to God, and, and he recognizes that the heavens are yours, and they're the work of your fingers, Lord. He recognized them as the work of God's fingers. And notice how that posture, that way that he's facing toward God, talking toward, toward him, that Godward praise leads him to a better understanding as his eyes are on the glory of his creator, as he's heaping up this praise directly to God, he asks two rhetorical questions that show how praise is shaping his understanding of himself. Praise is shaping the psalmist's understanding of himself. Let's, let's read those questions. Verse four. What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him. These are not shallow, uninteresting questions. No. These are deep, wondering questions. The answers to which hold enormous implications for how we live life and how we understand it. The first question in verse 4 is a, a question that every human heart asks. Every human heart longs for this question to be answered, and it's this. What is man? What is a human? What does it mean to be human? Or more personally put, who am I? And what is my purpose? We've all asked this question deep in our hearts, and it's one that continues to come up, one that we continue to search for, and we should. And we need to understand that we live in a culture that's obsessed with answering that question. Uh, you don't need me to tell you that identity is definitely a buzzword these days, isn't it? There are a lot of voices out there trying to tell people who they are. And the loud and clear message, the sum of all those voices, is that until you find your true identity, until you find your authentic self, who you truly are, then you will never be happy or fulfilled in this life. So people end up always trying to figure out how they fit in this world. And with a litany of voices available telling them who they are, people end up looking in all kinds of places, definitely the wrong places in their search for the meaning of who they are, in their search for themselves. Paul Tripp, you may have heard of him before, he's a pastor. He has a book called Dangerous Calling, and in this book he, he uses the illustration of carnival mirrors to talk about this a little bit. You're familiar with carnival mirrors? So when you look at a carnival mirror, you do see a reflection of yourself. You see yourself in the mirror, but it's a distorted image. You've either grown five feet or you've gained 50 pounds, right? It's not who you truly are, even though it is a reflection of yourself. And there's a lot of carnival mirrors in this life. And we've perhaps have looked to different carnival mirrors, so to speak, to try to figure out who we are, to try to see who we are in them. But this text is very clear. This psalm is clear. We do not find our self-worth or meaning to who we are in our accomplishments. We don't find it in how we're viewed by other people. We don't find it in our bank account or our stuff. No, our value is established by the God who is mindful of us. The God who made you. The God who sees you right now. Who knows what's going on in your heart of hearts. Who cares for you. Enough to send his son to die for you. No, our value is established by that God. The God who is mindful of even you.
you've heard the term identity crisis before, right? Well, an identity crisis is really a worldview crisis. When we try to answer life's biggest questions from a human-centric worldview, we will always be left unsatisfied. The big question of who am I? The world tries to answer that question by looking inward. The Bible affirms that identity is something for us to, to discover, to look for, and to find joy and contentment in when we do, but only in the right place. Because the Bible says the road to discovery of who you are is not by looking inward and not even by looking outward necessarily, but decidedly Godward. We would do better to discover and rediscover reality in relationship with the one who defines reality. And when we find ourselves unsatisfied with the human answers to who we are, when we find ourselves insecure about our lives and our purpose, that is a grace from God. It's a grace from God. He's calling us and drawing us to find the true source, the truth about who we are. He's drawing us to himself. Someone once said, insecurity is an invitation from God to escape the danger of false beliefs about who we are and to find true peace in who he is. It's a good line. True peace is only found in a relationship with the one who brings it. It isn't just that you know truth about God. It's that you know him personally. Sin gets in the way of this. Sin distorts our understanding of of everything, of reality, of ourselves, of life. Yet he who called himself the truth says that when we know the truth, the truth will set us free. And so the only right answer to the longing in our hearts for identity, for meaning, for fulfillment, for security, for rest, the only right answer is found in a personal relationship with Jesus. Indeed, the truth. And he will set us free. And so there's no greater example of the psalmist's affirmation that God is mindful of us and does care for us than the person and work of Jesus the Christ. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, while our hearts were not with him, Christ died for us. And what good news that is for us to marvel at, to wonder at, just like the psalmist does here, that the God of all creation is mindful of us and cares for us even while our hearts are far from him. Even in that state, he shed his own blood for us. And as the psalmist reflects further on this, he he transitions to spell out a truth that is very important for us to understand as we think about what it means to be human and our worth before God. And that is that God has given human beings worth and honor because he's given them a place of prominence among creation. Thus far, the psalmist has very clearly identified a distinction between the creator and his creation. And now, he also identifies a distinction between creatures or beings that God has made and human beings. A distinction between everything else and mankind. So verse 5, he's continuing this thought of what is man that you're mindful of him. Verse 5, yet you have made him, man, a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. I love that last line there, whatever passes along the paths of the seas, because who knows what's down there? I mean, what's the stats again? Like 60% of the ocean is still unexplored, or it might even be higher than that. I don't know. But, I mean, we don't know what's down there. But it could be... Nessie or Megalodon shark or I don't know, 
But what we do know, according to the psalm, is that whatever is down there, no matter how big and mighty it is, well, guess what? We have dominion over it. So uh, I dare you to tell that to the next shark you encounter, that you have authority over him. But it's true. We don't want to gloss over this. One of the ways God gives us honor and worth is by assigning us an important, honorable, worthy job to steward this earth and all its living things. And this isn't some empty, made-up position like when they put me in the outfield in Little League, you know, because the kids couldn't hit it into the outfield. So play outfield if you're not good. No, it's, it's not like that. This is a position of prominence, of authority, and yeah, honor. What is man that you are mindful of him, that you, you would do this to him? You'd give him a position of authority and honor. That's what the psalmist is getting back, and he's hearkening back as, as we should too to, to Genesis in its first few chapters. And, and let's go there. Let's go to Genesis 1. Start going to Genesis 1. We're going to start reading in verse 26. This is where the psalmist's mind is at when he's saying this about crowning him with, with glory and honor. God climaxes his creation by creating a being that's very different from everything else that he's made so far. Different from the mammals, the fish, the birds. So let's read this. Genesis 1. 26 to 28, when we're thinking about mankind, foundational scripture for us here. Starting in verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Sound familiar to what our psalmist was saying? It is the image of God that separates us from every other living thing. The reason the psalmist says we are crowned with glory and honor is because we are created in the image of the divine king of glory. We ought never to forget that every human life is precious. Every human has dignity and value because every human is crowned with glory and honor. Every human is made in the image of our glorious God. And what a surprise that should be to us, as it was for the psalmist as he pondered the beauty and the majesty of this God of the universe. And he recognized, rightly so, that man next to such a being, the God of the universe, is so small. Man so small and insignificant next to God. He was so surprised and wonders that God would crown him with glory and honor. We should be just as surprised and ask the question, as the psalmist does, why? What, what about man makes you do this? Why would such a great God crown what he made from dust with glory and honor? Why would such a, a worthy God bestow worthiness on those who are not at all worthy? Well, such questions are exactly what this psalm is all about. From a human perspective, there is no reasonable answer for why God would do this apart from this good news. That is just who God is. It's how he operates. He lifts up the weak and the unworthy and he humbles the strong. And that was the psalmist's point in verse 2. If you go back to verse 2, he, he talks about how God uses the voices of babies, the most weak and vulnerable, to display his strength and to silence his foes. He leaves no question as to who 
is in control, who is powerful. And yet he reveals his majesty in these very interesting ways. You know, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, 26 to 29, I'm going to read it from the New Living Translation. I have an ESV here, but I wrote it down in the New Living because it's a little bit of a paraphrase, and I think it comes across a little clearer. Remember, dear brothers and sisters, that few of you were wise in the world's eyes or powerful or wealthy when God called you. Instead, God chose the things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they are wise. And he chose things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. God chose things despised by the world, things counted as nothing at all, and used them to bring to nothing what the world considers important. As a result, no one can ever boast in the presence of God. This is the nature of God's majesty that he is all-wise and all-powerful. But he chooses to exert and display such greatness, not through the best and brightest, but through the weak and the lowly. He meets weakness with strength, hunger with provision, hopelessness with hope, and longing with fulfillment. But he usually does this in ways that that we don't expect from a human viewpoint. Look back on your life and see if the way God led you is exactly how you drew it up. It's not, is it? He works in unexpected ways from our point of view. The foolishness of the cross, Paul would say. Ah, but that's the wisdom of God. We're left in these situations where We don't see the wisdom in it from the outset, but looking back, maybe we do. We're left with no other explanation than to recognize the majesty of God, his wisdom and his power made evident and plain before us. And so being confronted with the majesty of God in these situations should cause us, as it does for the psalmist, to be left with no other choice than to praise the Lord for who he is and what he has done. So as we conclude this morning, I think this psalm gives us a concise view of what the psalms really are all about. The psalms are a call to personally praise the living God, to personally praise him in everything we do, how we think, how we talk, how we walk, we praise We must remember this, and if our praise is directed in its proper place, if the posture of our lives are decidedly Godward, then we'll be doing exactly what we are intended to do. The definition of what it means to be human, the answer to life's biggest and hardest questions, the the freeing truth that transforms and the, the source of all comfort, joy, and lasting peace can only be found in a right worshipful relationship with the God of the universe. And the only way to be in such a relationship, the only way to be right with him and to worship him in spirit and truth as we're called to do is through trusting Jesus as both your savior from sin and the Lord of your life. And when we think about what it means to be human, how we ought to live, how it is that we fit in this world, it could be easy for us to get discouraged We live in a a sin-filled, broken world, and if we're honest, we have to admit that we have contributed to that, haven't we? And so that can be discouraging, but we have to remember that is exactly why Jesus came. Jesus showed us what it looks like to be truly human, to do what we could never, to be human as God intends. He was not immune to the suffering or the temptation that we experience in this broken world. And yet he showed us God's power to overcome the world. Indeed, he said he has overcome it. He's overcome the world. His resurrection secured the hope that one day if we put our trust in him, one day our transformation will be complete 
that we will be human as we are intended to be. We'll be human like he was and is. We'll live up to our calling and we'll be seated with none other than the perfect human Jesus to reign with him over all creation just as indeed we were designed and called to do. In this, it's in the person and work of Christ, God has demonstrated the immeasurable riches of his kindness and grace toward us. And that's the ultimate picture of God's majesty. O Lord, O Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. The ultimate picture of God's majesty is the undeserved grace of a savior from sin who suffered, died, and who rose to bring life to those who were dead. And it is only right that we respond to the grace we have been shown with praise. Praise. Today, tomorrow, and forever. That's why praise is both right and transformative. Amen. I want to pray. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that you are mindful of us and that you care for us. And you have showed us this so beautifully. You have showed us your majesty in the most beautiful and way that we could never dream up. We could never conjure up a Savior coming to die on the cross to take our sin and our shame and crucify it, to take the punishment that we deserve, to satisfy your justice, to clothe us in righteousness if we put our faith in him, and then to know that in a future day, we will be made whole. That you, you love us enough not only to forgive us from our sin, but to rescue us from it completely. And we long for that day when there will be no more sin. But in the here and now, Lord, would you help us? Would you help us to be posturing our lives, orienting our hearts toward you? We know we need your help to do this, and we are so thankful that you offer it. And you do draw us to you through your spirit. So do that work in our hearts as we leave this place and as we go and we interact with life anew, as we return to the struggles of living in this broken world. And there's a lot of brokenness and pain. Help us in these moments to remember what we have learned this morning, to reorient our hearts towards you, to start with you, and to praise you with everything we are. We need your help for this, so we ask for it in the name of Jesus and through the Spirit we pray. Amen.